0: You guys know how much I love nursing schools. Well, we have another one that wants us to tell you about their MSN and DNP Family Nurse Practitioner Programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. And right now, they are offering tons of scholarship opportunities, starting at $10,000 for both of these programs. You know, I'm in the midst of getting my MSN. And let me tell you, I wish I would have known about these scholarships when I first enrolled. Visit them at smumsn.com and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's excellent. S-M-U-M-S-N dot com. Before we get started with the show, I just want to take a moment to thank Trusted Health for continuing to sponsor our podcast. We appreciate them so much. We want you to understand just how amazing this company really is. They are so good to their nurses. I hear from so many of you who are working for them now who have had amazing experiences, and I have heard from a lot of people who have tried travel nursing and were not happy at all with the experience that they've had. So I know that this company is so different than so many other travel agencies out there. So even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to their Website at trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse in there so that they know that we sent you there. Fill out a profile and you can see what jobs are waiting for you out there. You can see what they pay, what the stipend is, and just see what your options are. That's trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse. everybody this is tina again with good nurse bad nurse and we have a jam-packed episode for you today i've got a the the bad story the bad quote nurse story is actually about a hospital system and it is one i've been wanting to do for a couple of years now and i'm really really excited to get to do it and then the the good nurse story is one that i just happened to come across that actually was a facebook post and i can't wait to tell you about this woman and her story. It is unbelievable. And it's kind of one of those where you start talking about it and you can't even believe one thing after another. But you're going to love the story, trust me. And then our not necessarily nursing news segment is going to be, you, I definitely want you to stick around for this because I got a, a really cute joke to tell. And then we're going to talk about nurses being scientists. And I want, I really want to hear what you guys think about this, because I really, I I will fight you over this. I will absolutely fight you over this. So anyway, we got a great, great episode planned. And I have a really special guest on for you today. She's a nurse. She's also the fiance of my contact person for CBD Stat, the company that sponsors our podcast. Her, Her name is Morgan, but our guest today is Leah. Hello, Leah. How are you?
1: I am awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. This is definitely a pleasure.
0: You're welcome. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's always nice to have someone connected to one of our sponsors. It just sort of helps to kind of connect everyone. So it just worked out great. The Morgan's fiance just happens to be a nurse. And I was like, perfect. And tell everyone, I can't wait for it to this. I just found this out, you guys, just a couple of minutes ago. I want you to tell everyone the person that I that I am connected to on this podcast that you literally are connected to. I can't even believe it.
1: Yeah, so yesterday I happened to click on an episode and I heard Q who is a co- old coworker of mine and actually helped train me when I first started as a baby nurse. So it is absolutely the smallest of worlds here.
0: <laughs> I can't believe that coincidence. It's unbelievable. Nursing is Nurses are, are just—it's like a big family. If you think about it, it's like everywhere you go, you—it's you, you kind of have family everywhere because once you make that connection that that someone is a nurse, you're just like you get it. You know, you don't have to say anything. You're just like, oh yeah, you're you had this connection. But it's so strange of all of the people for you to come across on my podcast that you, to be connected to that it would be cute because he he's been. I mean, he and I have been friends. And we met through this podcast since almost the beginning, really. From you know when I was still just a couple of years ago and still kind of still getting used to everything. So that is really weird that he trained you. And so you're, I'm sure you're a really good nurse in spite of that, right? You, you figured out how to. <laughs> uh,
1: absolutely.
0: No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know Q's a really good nurse. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I'm really excited about doing the episode with you, and I guess we can get started. So. This bad uh, hospital system story is just, it's one that is kind of over the top. There is an entire book, a nonfiction book written about it that actually reads a whole lot like a novel almost, or maybe a docudrama. It is riveting and will just keep you on the edge of your seat. I, I listened to the the audiobook several years ago, and um, man, what a story. This is about Memorial Medical Center. And what happened in New Orleans, Louisiana, during Hurricane Katrina in 2005, in August of 2005. So this is an unbelievable story. And it's it's actually a really scary story. And when you really kind of get down into the details, it's scary for lots of different reasons. It's a, It's really scary as a nurse and some of the things that happened afterwards. But it's also scary as a person who could be a patient, you know, in a hospital and how vulnerable we are in certain situations. So Memorial Medical Center was located in Uptown, New Orleans, and it was considered one of the city's best hospitals. So Katrina hit the city in the early hours of August 29th, 2005. So by the afternoon, over 50 levees holding water back from the lake and the gulf burst. It flooded the city with even more water than was already there. They were already flooded. But I, I think that by this time, they everyone felt like it was receding and it was going to be okay. But unfortunately, that is not what happened because it was one of the deadliest natural disasters in the city's history. And it was because of those levees that broke. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor, Mark. I have been really needing to buy a stethoscope and i've been saying that for several months i've been i've been telling you yes i need a stethoscope you and what almost have you, got one for mother's day i almost got one for mother's day because he keeps telling me go buy one go buy a stethoscope go get one and i don't want to i don't want to spend more money on a stethoscope i say all this to tell you guys that we have uh, a company echo it's a technology company they have come out with a, te- a this like little device that you attach to two steth- stethoscopes to your stethoscope and it enhances the sound it's a, the coolest thing i was curious about it i really was so I, I reached out to them they came back and they were like hey let us send you a stethoscope see what you think so i i tried this stethoscope what they have done is they actually have partnered with litman and They've partnered with them. They literally took their best, like latest, most awesome stethoscope, the Cardiology Four, and they've up uh, they put their technology, the echo technology that enhances the sound on this stethoscope. And they put it all together and they're like, here. So it's not an attachment. Well, it is, but they they've attached it all already for you. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they sent this to me and I'm like, oh wow, okay, I want to try this. And I took it to Work and you brought it to me because yeah, yeah, came in the mail and yeah, I brought it to you about three o'clock in the afternoon or something. Yeah, you brought it to me at work and I was like, Oh, yes. And I went and got it and I brought it um into the break room and was opening it up. And everybody was like, What is that? I'm like, is this, It's a new stethoscope. I was so excited about it. So I put it on and I immediately go up to a nurse and I'm like, Listening, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is like the best stethoscope I have ever used in my life. It was just so crystal clear, amazing. I I could not believe the quality of like the heart sounds, the lung sounds, the bowel sounds. I was just listening to everything. And then what was funny is I looked down and there's this little button on it. (laughs) What's this do? I know, I'm like, what does this thing do? (laughs) (laughs) So I I push the button and lo and behold, like this little light comes on. And I'm telling you, when I say, that I literally heard this person's soul, I'm pretty sure it was unbelievable. You can hear every sound that the inside of a human body could possibly make. It, I, it's just unbelievable. I could not believe it. I brought it home and I, I let you use it. What did you think about it? Yeah, well, you know, I don't use a stethoscope, but I was amazed. I could I just listen to myself and I'd, mm-hmm. I'd never heard bowel sounds but it just <laughs> sounded so you know real. What's amazing. funny is if you in nursing school they always say you have to listen for 4 minutes and of course we're all just like, yeah, right. Like we're going to sit there and listen for a full minute per quadrant and li- you know it, no one has the time to do that. You don't have to worry about that with a stethoscope. If there's bow sounds, you're gonna hear it in the first few seconds. They are there. It's unbelievable the quality. You can hear, it's just like you can hear all the little nuances. I love this product. So they decided to sponsor our podcast. Yes. <laughs> probably because I was just like doing backflips, like going, I love this so much. I will literally I, I have no problem shouting from the rooftops, you need to get one of these stethoscopes. If you want to know what a heart is supposed to sound like, what lungs are supposed to sound like, what bowel sounds are supposed to sound like, you need this technology. It's unbelievable. It's Echo. And the name of the actual stethoscope with the core technology is the 3M Littmann Core Digital Stethoscope. It's the actual stethoscope that they sent me. And it's powered with the core technology by Echo. And it does feature like I said, with the flip of a switch, you the active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation. They use, it can use Bluetooth. It connects to Echo's free app and software that allows you to visualize, record, share, live stream, and analyze heart, lung, and other body sounds. It's crazy. I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. You can go to echo health and it's e-k-o-h-e-a-l-t-h.com echohealth.com and use the code g-n-b-n like good nurse bad nurse of course for $20 off of your purchase echohealth.com check it out and i would love to hear your feedback i want to hear what you guys think about this technology i'm really curious to know everyone's reaction so during the storm memorial sheltered 244 patients and about 1,500 members of staff, their families, and the families of patients. So that's, a, that's overwhelming to me, you know, to think about. 244 patients, 1,500 other people who aren't even patients. It sounds a little chaotic. Oh, yeah. That's, I,
1: didn't, you know, I didn't realize the sheer number of non-patients that were in the hospital. And I think when you hear, oh, it's 240 patients— but to have that many people considering all that happened the lack of resources i mean i couldn't imagine having 1700 total people in the
0: building right so as the hurricane knocked out the power and running water as we as we know you def- definitely need electricity and running water to be able to run a hospital i don't care what kind of patients you have you have to have electricity and water so As the water poured into the city, dirty water started to surround the hospital. By August 30th, evacuations were ordered for all of the patients. But they needed a helicopter for some of the more critically ill patients. So all of the companies that ran the helicopters were already booked out to other hospitals by this time. So there was no local emergency plan for this scenario. No one had planned for an event like this. I mean, it's to think about such an oversight, you know, by the people who ran the city, the people who ran the hospital. This was a large hospital corporation, but everyone just started pointing fingers at each other. And everyone was expecting someone else to do something. So the National Guard was deployed. But... Most of the National Guard was actually in Iraq with much of the equipment the city needed to handle the disaster. So it, it was just a mess. Two evacuations took place. A National Guard hauler took 12 people. A helicopter arrived to take more patients, but there were disagreements among the staff regarding who was supposed to be top priority. So eventually They decided that their top priorities were to save the newborns, ICU patients, dialysis patients, and high-risk pregnant high-risk pregnant mothers first. You know, they and, and in a situation like this, you have to have a way of figuring out who to save first, right? Oh yeah. Just coming up with that triage plan. Right. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. You would think something like this would have been Uh, developed before? I mean, do you not have to take yearly education where you have to know what the plan is in case there's like an emergency that happens? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Like all sorts of disaster preparedness. But it does make me think that a lot of that training came out of situations like this where we were so grossly unprepared that it's crucial that systems have something in place because Mm -hmm. not to jump the gun, but I think that Lack of triaging system is what can lead to such questionable circumstances,
0: and it's it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Because then you just have everyone arguing over the right thing to do, and then someone ultimately has to make the decision, and then that falls on that one person's shoulders to make a decision like that. And then, of course, afterwards, everyone's going to point the finger at them and be the Monday morning quarterback and and say you should have done this and should have done that. And so, that's why we have to have plans in place before, you know, before something like this happens. So August 31st, there was about 150 patients left and the generators failed. So this is a nightmare. This is an absolute nightmare. Temperatures started to climb until they reached over 100 degrees. I can't even imagine being, you know, in this hospital. You have 150 patients, some of which are on ventilators and they don't have electricity for them because they don't have generators and that now it's starting to get hot. It's it's just unimaginable. Yeah.
1: I, I truly think of the staff in this position and just kind of that moment where the generators shut off and, you know, you're already two days into this and that how they must have felt in that instance knowing what that meant for the patients that were still there is it must have been so difficult
0: immediately when that happened five patients who were who were on life support died right away by the end of the day 60 more had died so in doing the research for this that number was referenced several times in different articles and in the book that i was telling you about but other sources listed 45 bodies and so it's a little unclear, but that's that's kind of how these things work too, right? Because you have all different sources of information. But let's just suffice it to say that a lot of people died that day, and, and it was truly tragic and horrible. Horrible. It should have been something that they could have foreseen, but somehow whoever was in you know in charge of this either didn't foresee it or didn't choose to. I don't know. So no power, failing battery packs, no access to most of the medical records, and they started to really lose faith in the hope that they were going to be rescued anytime soon. So the medical professionals were faced with some very, very difficult decisions at this point, point. and some actually just stopped working altogether because they were literally just trying to survive and take care of their own families. So they were actually starting to suffer. People who were there as family members of the staff started to suffer from dehydration and overheating because of the high temperatures. And so these staff members are just like, you know, I can't take care of these patients. I have to take care of my own family. I I can't imagine being in that situation. So there were two female physicians who actually kept working. One of those, her name was Anna Poe, Dr. Anna Poe. It's spelled P-O-U. So after helping to load the babies onto the last helicopter, which actually required carrying them around this a terrifying obstacle course around the hospital up to the roof, Dr. Poe went to check on the life care patients. So life care is actually... It's kind of a weird situation. It's probably more common than I understand, but I just don't take the time to try to understand the way hospitals work and how they maybe, you know, lease out their hospital space to other companies for, you know, rehab units and that sort of thing. But that's essentially what this was. Life care was a unit, it was a for-profit company for long-term patient care of elderly and terminally ill patients. All of the staff had left, or were not in the unit caring for these patients. It's heartbreaking and shocking. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to reserve passing judgment on anyone and during this. And sometimes I get judgy uh, in some of these stories when it's just real obvious. But I'm not going to. I'm going to reserve because I honestly have never been in the situation and I can't yeah, imagine. I couldn't being.
1: imagine being in any of those staff shoes, but. At the same time, I also couldn't imagine ever leaving my patients. And um, especially Mm -hmm. if it is long term care, you know, those are patients who really are dependent on the care of others.
0: These patients were not allowed to be removed without the company's permission. And no one had arranged evacuation with FEMA. Memorial also said that they were simply not responsible for the unit. Uh, because it didn't re- it didn't belong to them so basically they were saying well this company life care you know leased out and and i'm kind of making this up you know this is the way i understand this that but they leased out this space within our hospital and so it's their responsibility to take care of these patients and and to figure out an evacuation process to get these people out and have them cared for and so memorial just sort of washed their hands of it and just acted like oh, well we can't be responsible for that. And and everyone just said, well, the patients are just gonna stay, you know, sit still and stay there because no one's making a decision. So August 31st, Dr. Poe helped to set a triage for future rescue efforts. So due to sewage and the potential for healthy people to get sick they decided on reverse triage where they would actually send the healthiest people first and patients with a DNR status last it's it's really heartbreaking because you know a lot of people that try to make that decision to become a DNR you know I do not resuscitate they do that because they don't want to have someone doing chest compressions and breaking their bones and them living in a, you know, a state of pain and suffering if they were to be able to be brought back or go or suffer a horrible death. But they didn't, that doesn't, they never intended that to mean to not treat them.
1: And that's, I think that creates such a giant gray area for this entire situation. But yeah. unfortunately, it was something they had to take into consideration when you start to reverse
0: triage patients. Yeah. They had to face the reality that it was unlikely that some of the sicker, more elderly patients were going to be rescued. I mean, at, at some point in this dire, dire situation, um, unprecedented, No, none of these people had ever lived through this situation. Most people... Most people we know would have never lived through anything like this. And so they're literally trying to figure it out as they go. And they were making the best decisions that they could. So Dr. Cook suggested, and and this is what is in the records um, and the accounts, but Dr. Cook suggested euthanasia and then left in search of his son. And also Mulderick suggested that Dr. Poe should consider administering a combination of morphine and benzodiazepine sedative to the life care patients who were dying. And this is something that we do as nurses um, to care for end-of-life patients, people who have reached a point that there's literally nothing else medically that you can do to treat them. And so what you're not going to do anything to help them to get better because you can't. You've literally done everything that you can and they are going to be, they are at end of life. Now, how long that lasts, no, no one can know that, but it's just about, okay, we can't do anything else. And it also is a decision that the family has to make, that the patient obviously has to make if they're capable. And it's not one that anyone takes lightly, but once that decision is made, then you do everything that you can to To keep the patient comfortable. You are not euthanizing the patient. You are not trying to hasten a death. You're just trying to keep them comfortable. And morphine and benzodiazepines like Ativan are medications that we use to do that, to help to keep them comfortable. And a lot of times it actually, rather than hasten their death, it actually uh, prolongs their life because it helps to relax their airway and they can breathe more comfortably. It really reduces their anxiety. So I think a lot of people don't really understand that and they think you're, you know, doing, you're actually killing them by giving them this medicine and it's not, that's not the way it is. But apparently there was some sort of conversation while this was happening that they would actually administer these medications in order to hasten the death. And I'm I'm assuming that that meant, you know, give higher amounts of it. Um it's, it's just shocking to think about this happening and to think about people, medical professionals, well-intentioned medical professionals having to have this conversation.
1: Yeah. I think also, you know, I think about my own patients that are comfort measures only. And over time, you do have to increase the doses because some of them are tolerating it more and patients on morphine drips that go up to incredibly high rates. And you're like, wow, this is crazy. And I think in this situation too, you're This is day three. The temperature is 106 degrees. There's been a lack of resources. And, you know, you might think that the patients might need a little bit of a higher dose than they previously would have gotten to stay comfortable in this exact circumstance. So it really is a a gray area that was created.
0: Yes, um, it's it's definitely a gray area uh, because, as you know, if you have someone who has decided... I I don't want any further treatment. And so then you're going to do things to try to help them be comfortable. If you over sedate them, then obviously they're not able to eat. They're not able to take in liquids. And then they're going to starve. And that that is definitely, that's not going to be a good death. So there has to be a fine line there, you know. Absolutely. So it's unclear. So it's unclear if, yeah. It's unclear if Dr. Poe and the other doctors followed through with an actual plan to euthanize the patients but high levels of morphine were found in their systems the medical staff claimed it was in an effort to sedate and comfort the patients she claims that she absolutely did not attempt to euthanize patients and i i mean i believe her for, for, just from reading the book i believe that that these were healthcare professionals in a horrible unprecedented situation that were literally trying to do the very best they could to take care of people and keep them as comfortable as possible. And there was no intention whatsoever of trying to euthanize anyone. I think her just being
1: there in the first place kind of speaks to her character of caring for these patients. You know, she stayed. She was still there. She wanted to be there for them. And I think that is really
0: credible in itself. You would think that would account for something, but... So, a judge found enough probable cause to warrant the arrest of, of this doctor, Dr. Anna Poe, and also two nurses for the second-degree murder of four patients. The Louisiana attorney general called the drug cocktail found in the patient systems a guaranteed killer. So, initially, there were reports of unnamed eyewitnesses to the discussions about euthanizing patients who were not going to make it. but there really wasn't any reliable forensic evidence to back that up. And as you know, in situations like this, there's going to be all sorts of people that are going to talk. And there were, you know, there were all these people in that hospital who were not healthcare professionals, you know, they were family members. And if they were privy to any of the stuff that was going on, then they prop it probably would have been shocking to, to think you're giving them morphine you know you're th- because they don't understand what's going on
1: could have just been a simple misinterpretation
0: mhm absolutely so the model state emergency health powers act uh that was enacted after 911 stated during a state of public health emergency any health care providers shall not be civilly liable for causing the death of or injury to any person. So there was at least that. In 2007, a grand jury refused to indict Dr. Poe and the state of Louisiana repaid all of her legal fees. No other doctor or person in a leadership position was held accountable or had charges brought against them. So she has actually since then helped to write several laws that protect medical providers, that act in good faith from lawsuits following cri- a crisis like this. She's also gone on to advise state and national medical organizations on disaster preparedness and legal reform. Now, does that sound like somebody who, <laughs> you know, I feel like she uses her powers for good. You know, she's,
1: Absolutely she's to, a good
0: person and she's a good doctor, it sounds like. To,
1: to turn around and advocate for others and kind of change legislature and make it so that people aren't put in the shoes that you know, she was absolutely made the scapegoat in this situation. It's it's really unfortunate because she was the one that was there with patients and, you know, she stuck through it. So it's unfortunate that people tried to hold her accountable when these agencies were refusing to claim responsibility for these patients in the first place. So I think it's awesome that she's continued to
0: have a voice in this. I do too because it would have been really easy for her. I think for a lot of people in, in that position to just throw up her hands and say, "You know what? I'm I've been through enough. I don't have to do any. I don't have to do anything." And she didn't. But she wanted to make things better for other people because she's not probably likely ever going to be in that situation again. But she wanted to make sure that no one had to be in that situation. So there were actually several wrongful death suits brought against her from patients families. And I I know I said I wasn't going to judge, but I feel like that's so disgusting for for that, you know, for someone to I, I could understand the hospital and I can understand the you know these large corporations, these large hospital corporations that were responsible that should have had some sort of a plan in place that there were there if you read this book, this book is amazing. The book it's called Five Days at Memorial, and, it, and like I said, it reads almost like a docudrama. It's absolutely riveting. It will make you think about nursing care for end-of-life patients, but it will also make you think about how, uh, who, you know, who is responsible in these situations, and is it okay for these, these institutions to just throw their hands up and say, oh, well, we, we could have never foreseen this happening. But if you read this book, you will know that there are lots of details, lots of things that happened, and and corners that were cut that shouldn't have been cut uh, because of money. And that's what usually something like this boils down to is they didn't want to they didn't want to spend the money to have the hospital in a state that it those generators could have worked and should have worked.
1: Yeah, and I think to you know I understand people's frustrations and sadness with losing a loved one, but to try to put that blame on mm-hmm. one individual when it was a natural disaster and there were so many other factors at play you know you can't do that
0: no i i um i definitely empathize with the with the family it's just to to blame the the people who were stuck in this awful situation who were just trying to do the best they could. That's what I don't understand. The book itself is divided into two parts. The first part is called Deadly Choices, and it focuses on all the events that occurred over the five days that that refers to to the title. And during those five days, of course, their emergency plans were definitely inadequate and you know obviously losing power, backup generators failing, that sort of thing, no um, air condition, no air conditioning, no lights, sewer systems and all of those things that happen, thousands of staff, patients, evacuees trapped by floodwaters inside the building, um awaiting, you know, evacuation by helicopter or boat. And it's so well written, it's a Pulitzer prize winning book and the author just I mean, just did an amazing job just laying it out there in a very readable, easily readable way and interesting way. It's not, it doesn't read like just, you know, a a bunch of facts. It's, it's, she's just an eloquent writer and it's, it's, it's definitely a book that you, if you like to read or even listen, I like to listen to books, like while I'm driving and that sort of thing. It's definitely worth listening to or, or reading. But the second part is called The Reckoning and it discusses the legal and political ramifications because of their response to the crisis and especially the decisions to, of course, quote, euthanize the patients, but, the, but how that whole thing was was handled, the reverse triage and all of that. And it just sort of shines light on it, but it's not real judgmental. It's not judging. It really doesn't judge anyone. If anything, it judges the, the system, which is, of course, that's what I'm doing. But it's it's done in such a way that it just basically gives you all the information and then you can decide for yourself, which I love. Yeah, I love that. Even
1: kind of talking about that when I was looking up a few notes on the case, I was reading how Mtala didn't apply to her because they were already admitted patients. And then how Louisiana's Good Samaritan law didn't apply because she was considered in, on staff, like she was already on staff. And so because she was working, even though it was life care and it wasn't even her hospital and she wasn't even supposed to be there that that kind of came and backfired on her. And, you know, it's just kind of crazy reading up on these laws that you kind of think are in place to protect you in situations like this. It was just really fascinating to learn that because that's kind of where my mind jumped at first too. So it's a really interesting case.
0: Yeah, it is. Because she wasn't supposed to be there that day. She went in, I can't remember that do you remember the circumstances? I think there was something she going had on.
1: Recently bought a house and I think she was supposed to be going there and then she got called in.
0: Right. So she definitely didn't have to be there. It's not like she was already working and it would have been considered abandonment had she left. She chose to put herself there. And then when, you know, once she stayed, a lot of the other doctors did leave, you know, and other healthcare people too, this left. And I'm not judging them for doing that either. I'm, I i do not know. I don't know what I would have done. It would be really difficult to Kind of abandon your own family in order to take care of other people, but it's, it would also be very difficult to abandon your your job and your your calling as a nurse to care for people and help them in their you know time of need. It would be really difficult to de- to do, and I would hope that I would. Be the person who would s- just stay there and and care for them. I just hate to judge people like that because it's it's impossible to know what you really would do. You know?
1: Yeah. Every circumstance is unique, but I think in the past year, as nurses, we've also kind of had a little exposure to thinking about that and nursing through COVID and kind of being there for your patients in that sense as well. Mm-hmm. So it did definitely kind of make me think back to that as well.
0: Yeah, I thought about this uh, th- a few times or th- over the past year about this book, it's a little different because, you know, there's not, it's not an immediate, it wasn't an immediate thing that just all of a sudden happened. And, you know, lights going off and n- no water and, and all of that. But it was like, still, you're putting yourself in harm's way. You're definitely, when everybody else is staying at home and hunkering down, you're getting in your car and driving to work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah And, you know, even just thinking about being there for your family and, or, mm-hmm. and being there for your patients and, yeah. Especially at the very beginning, kind of navigating those decisions. We were, of course, yeah. fortunate that hospitals maintained power and we had those resources. Um, mm-hmm. So, and th- and that was difficult yeah. for us. So I couldn't, I couldn't imagine losing mm-hmm. all of that stuff that made it easier on us.
0: And there was a time toward the beginning of the pandemic, I think, that a lot of us were unsure about what was going to happen or what could have possibly happened. Are we going to run out of PPE altogether and not not have a way to protect ourselves? what could possibly happen? I mean, we didn't know if if so many people get sick that we're literally trying to care for people in the parking garage and turning it, you know, makeshift. We didn't know what was going to happen. And then are we going to be held accountable for things that go wrong in those circumstances, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember at the beginning, the way protocols were changing, you know, every day it was important to check your email because like you said, mm-hmm. despite emergency situations, people can still be held liable. You still have a license at the end of the day.
0: That's true. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. And I, you guys, I started travel nursing. I, so I've been talking about Trusted Health now for what a couple of years. They've been sponsoring the podcast. I've had f- friends that have used them. They're They sound like this wonderful, amazing company. It all sounds so just easy and like Streamline and just perfectly efficient and just it's like an easy process to go through I've had friends that have done it that literally have told me that that's exactly the way it is and so I trust that that's exactly the way it is now I'm doing it myself and I've gone through the whole process I've done my first couple of weeks as a as a travel nurse with Trusted Health and I can 100% now <laughs> with confidence tell you that Everything that I've been saying for the past two years is hundred percent true. It really is a wonderful company, and it works exactly the way I've said it does, and that they they say it does. It's it's so easy. I would encourage anyone who's listening to this. If you are considering travel nursing, definitely do it. Go to at least go to trustedhealth.com. Be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they know that we sent you there. If you are even a little bit curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse put in all the information there, fill out a profile, and you can see what jobs are out there waiting for you. So, I guess we can talk about our good nurse story. I am really excited about this. I I was just kind of scrolling through. I I get on my computer and look at get on Facebook to try to get caught up and see is there anything on there? Has someone messaged me? Like what's what's going on? And I don't get on there enough, so usually there's like a ton of stuff for me to kind of navigate through. And the first thing that popped up was a post in the tribe RN Facebook group, which is a, a group of nurses that just sort of like post lots of different things on there. And the person who started that group is actually, she's been on the podcast. And so I saw, I saw that that pop up and it was like a picture of a woman um, on the left side with You could tell, you know, like who's in, like an an inmate. And then on the right side, the same woman, but like looked totally different, just completely transformed. She had scrubs on. And so it just piqued my interest. Of course, I had to start reading it. And she told her story, and I could not stop reading this. It was just, so I messaged her and I said, Hey, I have a podcast where I try to, you know, I feature stories about nurses that do good things and bad things and uh, I would love to feature your story in our Good Nurse segment and she immediately replied back and said yes absolutely I you know, would love for you to so um, I'm going to tell you guys the story of this person and you're I just mm. yeah, she, uh,
1: she's a really awesome person who's overcome a lot mm. to get where she is yeah.
0: well she certainly has her name is Danielle Teague she said that at the age of 23 she started living a life that was she. She refers to as uh, sinful, self gratifying, and against the ways that she knew were right. She said she made choices that led to a long and painful road of drug and alcohol addiction that she could see no end to. She said no one else in her family um, and in her circle could see an end to it either. And, and I can relate to that. I, I've definitely been there with some of my my family. So she said by the age of 25, she had given birth to her first daughter. She named her daughter Hope. One year later, after countless attempts to stay clean and sober, she lost parental rights to Hope and she Hope was adopted out. She said she hadn't seen her since, and she's Hope is now 14. So, and and this actually was a, a repost. She posted this a year ago and this was a, a kind of an update to this post. So, uh, this is actually a, a year later. So, apparently, this happening, of course, drove her further into addiction. And she, um, in her words, began shooting up meth instead of smoking it. And then she said she did that for years. She drank every day and was at the point of having severe withdrawals if she even had to stop or go without for just a few hours. So she went in and out of of jail because of one charge that she had. But because of this one charge, she would have probation and she couldn't pass her drug test. So she would have to continue to go back to jail because when she would go in for her drug test, she would fail it. So she actually ended up revoking her own probation and just going to prison because she just wanted to be, quote, off paper with the state of Arizona, where's where she's from, she said I had to go twice because she couldn't complete her parole, and her charge was in 2005 for this for for what what she was charged with, and she completed her sentence for it in January of 2013. And that's a long time. It's a long road for the same charge, and right, it's, it's tough for something I'm sure that didn't deserve eight years in prison but she had friends at different times in her life that would care for her. And she said, looking back, she knows that God used them to keep her safe and alive. She said she was always miserable and there was such a constant sadness about her in, 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 uh, in spite of the fact that she tried to keep herself numb. So she said she was a full fledged, what she calls addict and, um, From an alcoholic with no place to truly call her own for 10 years straight. She said she dealt with homelessness, complete chaos, and everything that comes along with having to support each addiction, such an addiction. So eight years after she lost her daughter, she said that um, never thinking she'd ever have any more children after that. She said that God had other plans for her life, and soon after she got pregnant again. She turned herself back into the Department of Corrections to finish up her sentence. And it was there that she heard the baby's heartbeat for the first time. Unfortunately, though, she said she got out and nothing in her life had changed. Same people, same circumstances. So she said, I even considered adopting him out because she just couldn't imagine ever being able to raise him. She said, I knew he'd be taken away as well, and I couldn't handle losing another baby that way. But she said that her aunt in Kansas selflessly reached out to her. And I know that that had to be difficult for her aunt because it is not easy to help someone in this situation when you feel like they don't, it feels as though they don't want to be helped. It's not true, but it's just, it feels like an impossible situation and can be exhausting for family members and loved ones.
1: It definitely speaks to the unconditional love that the aunt has.
0: Oh, my goodness, yes. Her aunt said, do you want to come tonight or tomorrow? She was willing to open up her beautiful home, she said, and give her a new start that she desperately needed. So she said it was in June of 2013, and she got on a plane the very next day. She even told the person that was taking her to the airport, just you wait and see what the Lord does in my life, because that was it. I was really ready for change. And so she got there completed a 28-day rehab program, and then was able to come back to her aunt's to rest and wait for her baby to be born. So she had her son in September. His name is Joshua. And she said she thought about her future and what I should do with my life. So I decided I would go back to school and become a nurse. So she registered for school and began her prerequisites in January of 2014. This is so weird because I started nursing school in 2013, so it's just kind of a a little bit surreal for me to think that it's kind of going on parallel with, with what my life was doing at the time. She said, looking back, I don't even know if I really believed I could do it. I could definitely relate to her there for sure. She said, "Let's be honest, I had virtual I had done virtually nothing productive up, up until that point and all of a sudden I was just going to become a nurse." And she's what, like a thousand question marks. And she said, "I was officially a felon and the cards were stacked against me." And this I love the story so much because I want you guys listening to understand that it you can overcome anything, absolutely anything. Don't listen to the lies that that say, "Oh, you've done this in the past, you're not going to be able to, you know, overcome that." She said, That is God's favorite kind of circumstance to use. It's when he makes possible what is impossible in man's eyes, and he rightfully gets all the glory. She said, pretty soon after, I met my husband in the church, and we had a daughter together, and they named her Grace. I love these names. so sweet. But her story of trial and tribulation didn't end, unfortunately, there. She said, I faced many challenges going back to school, being a wife and mother, and having another baby, and she struggled a lot. And then in the summer of 2016, a major tragedy struck. And this is awful. A precious little girl that she was babysitting drowned in her backyard pool. It was horrible. It was tragic. It was just, and this is just gut-wrenching to, to read. I can't imagine. And she said that I didn't know if I could ever recover from it. I don't blame her for feeling that way. It would be really hard. So she said, I felt like I literally lost my mind for a while because that day would just play over and over and over again like a tape, and I was in constant turmoil. She began drinking heavier again after that than ever before. She was prescribed all kinds of medicine for her anxiety and was even hospitalized a few times from alcohol withdrawals. What a mess I had become again, she said. But God's love never fails. God's love never gives up. Have you ever heard the song Reckless Love? I don't know what that song is, but I thought I probably will go listen to it now. She said, if not, go listen to it. I had gone astray and he left the 99 to get me back. So sweet. She's just so precious. She said, I completely failed following fall semester in school. I would have given up by now. I'm just.
1: Yeah, her perseverance is it's something. I couldn't even imagine
0: attempting to go back to school after well, that. She said she was informed that her financial aid had been terminated because of it. She said, I had already acquired so much debt and knowing I would now have no degree, the thought of school made me physically ill. I can relate to that so much. Oh, gosh. So she said, so many people were praying for me and us as a family. Enough was finally enough. And by the grace of God, I surrendered my life completely and wholly over to Christ once again to take the pain to heal my heart and to take and to make a way where there was no way. And as always, he was faithful literally days after my last drink. I was getting ready to go to an appointment and the Lord spoke to my heart to appeal to the school's decision and to explain what happened that past summer with the little girl. Oh, oh my goodness. I just, mm, she's strong. <laughs> she's strong. I'm telling you, it's meant for her to be a nurse. She said, if I could just explain the circumstances as to why I failed that semester, maybe I could try again. I needed confirmation from God about this. Was this really the Lord laying this on my heart? Well, a few hours later, I got home from my appointment, and in the mailbox was a letter from the school with the words financial aid on the front. It was just an instruction letter on how to complete exit counseling and next steps on how to pay back the student loans I now had. But the thing was, I hadn't heard anything from them in quite a while. That for me was enough confirmation that I was supposed to move forward with contacting them. But God went even further. I nervously called the school. And on the other end, I heard, thank you for calling, this is, and it was the name of the little girl, Her, the person who answered the phone. Oh, I just have chills. I had chills when I read this this morning. I just, ugh, it's just hard for me to even get through this without crying, but I am going to do it. I am not going to start crying. She said, it was then that any doubt in my mind was washed away because I knew that it was the will of God for me to still be a nurse. <laughs> She said, my jaw just hit the floor. I cried in disbelief and with such awe. After gathering all of the necessary paperwork, my appeal was granted and I was able to continue my education. The only thing I can take credit for was my decision to surrender my life completely to him. I want to care for those who are just like I used to be and share the love and hope of the Savior. And so she, that's her, she just wants to tell everyone about her experience. She says she is now an ED nurse and has been. For almost a year, every day I get to go to work is a blessing, and I look forward to each new experience and I encounter. So she literally is going to take that experience, and I mean the transformation between prison in two thousand eleven and RN grad in two thousand twenty. <laughs> beautiful, just gorgeous, and I love the story so much, and I I could not believe I came across this.
1: Yeah. Looking at her graduation photo, I mean, you truly would never know what her background is. And I think it's honest that she was so open and raw with where she's come from and the journey that it's taken her to get where she is today.
0: Yes. I love that she was just so honest about everything. And I feel like people are going to hear this story. And there's going to be people out there that will listen to the story who probably were at where I think I would probably be and telling themselves, I, I've done, this is I've done too much. I can't. I can't that no one's gonna forgive me for this. I've been forgiven too many times. I've been given second chances and third chances. So I it's not gonna matter. I there's no point. Always there will always be another opportunity. There will always be a chance for redemption. So never give up. You can ne- just never give up. It I feel like there were so many times in her story that it would have been a hundred percent reasonable and most people probably would have said there's no point in me trying to pursue being a nurse. And she, I'm sure she felt that way. And yet she just kept going and kept going and kept going. And there she is, just the most gorgeous, you know, nurse. Not only is she just beautiful inside and out, but she's got the story that will help her to have so much empathy for the people that's going to be coming through those doors. That's going to expect her to care for them unconditionally.
1: Yeah. I think it also really highlights the diverse background of how people can get to nursing. And there's really no one clear cut path. I think even just thinking of the people I work with, everyone has had a different journey to how they got to be a nurse. Um, And each of those journeys truly only add to the empathy that we have for our patients. And it gives everyone a different understanding, whether it is a history of substance abuse, whether it was a previous degree, whether you worked HR for 20 years, and then, you know, you decided that you, nursing was your passion. I think it's truly a testament to, like, whatever path you're on, if you are interested in nursing, you just can you can pursue it, you know, you can tackle anything. Um, I do, I really love that, it's just how diverse nurses' backgrounds are. I think it just makes us better caretakers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it does, it does. You know, I, had an opportunity uh, recently where I was caring for my two patients that I was caring for were so, so different in their personalities and the way that, I guess, the kind of people that they came across as just kind of trying to, just judging them on the outside for their, for their, the way that they treat other people. And one of them is like, and I have to be careful because I don't want to give out any information that could violate HIPAA. Let's just say that one of them had very obvious prejudices against certain races and was just it's kind of hard to say because I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna give anything away that's I don't wanna to be too but one of them had clear prejudices and was not afraid to say that they did. And was not a very likable person, it was actually a very difficult person to care for because they were just extremely hateful and hurtful and just it just felt icky just being in the same room with them. And the other patient also had lots of issues, like just you know, very sick and and issues, but was just like so sweet and kind. And just a precious, you know, one of those patients where you're just like want to do everything for them. And so I, you know, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh, was, yeah.
1: You're like, you want a foot <laughs> rub? All right. I'll, I'll take like the extra five minutes for you. Like those are the patients yeah. that they, they truly keep you going. They their positive mm-hmm. energy kind of gives you some strength each day. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. And they remind you. um, They, they help you because they say things that the other patients don't say, you know, they say things like, like my patient, this, the, the one that I'm, I'm saying was like so sweet and precious. He said, uh, at the end of the day, he said, I'm glad I got you. (laughs) And I was just, it just absolutely melted my heart. And I was just like, I hope my other patient thinks that way too, because I don't want, I don't want to be a different nurse. For that patient than I am to this one, because yes, it's easier to take care of this one, but I am a nurse and I it shouldn't matter what that person has done, who they are. I should still be able to take care of them in the same way as as well, just as well, you know, am I going to like that person? I don't have to like them. I don't even have to be super syrupy sweet to them. But I'm going to show them kindness. I'm going to show them empathy. I'm going to educate them about what's going on with their problems. I'm going to give them absolute best care, advocate for them with with, uh, the providers, just everything that I possibly can, and actually try to go the extra mile and be kind to them because who knows why they are the way they are. Why are they so hurtful? Why are they so hateful? Has anybody ever shown them kindness?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think, and that's the level of empathy that we have as nurses is that no matter how someone may be treating you, you're still their nurse at the end of the day and you have their care and their best interest in mind. And I've had patients where I've had them five nights in a row and the first two or three nights, it's been brutal. But By the end, we've formed a relationship and they thank me for kind of showing them the empathy and gratitude that they deserve. Everyone deserves that no matter how you may be acting, you still deserve to receive that. And it's it can be tough. It, it's not always easy. And it helps when you do have the patients that tell you that they appreciate you. There's definitely certain patients in my mind that even from a year ago, I'm still riding that high of the compliment that they gave me. Mm. But it's definitely nursing's a really interesting profession. But I think it's important to highlight that no matter how we're treated, we're always there to advocate for our patients and give them the very best that they deserve.
0: Very true. Very well said. So I guess we can do our not necessarily nursing news i'm excited about this because i love to tell jokes
1: (laughs) this was was a good one i really enjoyed this
0: (laughs) (laughs) so um this this we're going to tell a joke and then we're going to talk about the nurse scientist part um so on a busy med search floor the doctor stopped to brief me on a patient's condition this patient is a fellow physician and my favorite golf partner his injury is serious, and I fear he will not be able to play golf again unless you follow my orders exactly. The doctor then began listing orders. He must give an injection in a different location every 20 minutes, followed by a second injection exactly five minutes after the first. He must take two pills exactly every hour, followed by one pill every 15 minutes for eight hours. He must drink no, more than, no less than 10 ounces of water every 25 minutes and must void between. Soak his arm in warm water for 15 minutes, then place ice for 10 minutes and repeat over and over for the rest of the day. Give range of motion every 30 minutes. He requires a back rub and a foot rub every hour. Feed him something tasty every hour. Be cheerful and do whatever he asks at all times. Chart his condition and vital signs every 20 minutes. You must do these things exactly as I ordered or his injury will not heal properly and he will not be able to play golf very well or play golf well. The doctor left and I entered the patient's room. I was greeted by anxious family members and an equally anxious patient all quickly asked what the doctor had said about the patient. I stated, the doctor said that you will live. Then quickly reviewing the orders, I added, but you will have to learn a new sport.
1: <laughs> I think we've all probably seen an order set before where we felt that way. <laughs>
0: yeah, just, I know it's over the top, and but it's uh, still, some of them do feel that way, completely impossible. Like, th- this is not possible for me to do all of these things. <laughs> yeah, <me. laughs> So... Nurses are scientists. I got this article from scientificamerican.com, and it was just published in April of this year. And it says, as ICU beds filled with COVID-19 patients last spring, hospitals learned that very sick patients were able to breathe better when they were flipped onto their stomachs. This positioning, called proning, has been used for decades to improve clinical outcomes for those suffering from acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. The lung condition that patients with severe COVID nineteen cases develop. So proning them, uh, proning patients was first described in a 1976 article published in the Journal of Critical Care Medicine by ICU nurse Margaret Peel and physician Robert Brown. As a fellow nurse, it's not surprising to me to learn that a nurse helped pioneer and gain acceptance for this life-saving procedure. The COVID pandemic has made it abundantly clear how important nurses are. To our healthcare system. They have heroically cared for patients and have rapidly integrated new knowledge on the disease into the care they provide. Some nurses are also generating new knowledge through research, whether they run clinical trials as clinical research nurses or lead their own research programs studying topics from metabolic disease to dementia to symptom science. But the truth is that all nurses are scientists. To become a nurse, you don't just learn human anatomy. First of all, that's a science. The required prerequisites for nursing education are science courses. I mean, the fact that we have to say this, so like, was this not common knowledge? But it's true. From high school to nursing school, where future nurses learn chemistry, microbiology, physics, genetics, pharmacology, and pathophysiology, this foundation of science enables them to apply their knowledge to the complexities of caring for people. Take ICU nurses who have been on the front lines caring for the critically ill COVID-19 patients. They have gotten where they are not only for their care and compassion, but for their science training and acumen in managing the complexity of a patient's illness. Besides holding a patient's hand, communicating with patients and families, bathing and comforting, ICU nurses are assessing and adjusting intravenous fluids, medications, and oxygen levels that inform how to keep the patient in pH balance, oxygenated correctly, and at the appropriate Cognitive level for their recovery. They do this with knowledge and skills in assessing and monitoring electrocardiograms, arterial blood gases, managing ventilator settings, and observing body responses that include fluid retention, skin color, vital signs, lung and heart sounds, and brain cognition. Normally I don't read all uh, like word for word like this from an article, but it was so well written that I wanted to I wanted to like hang on to every word that this nurse wrote because it is so true and I just could not possibly restate it any better. I was just going to say I, that
1: paragraph was my favorite because I thought it really just perfectly executed what nursing is and how all of those roles that we play.
0: Yes, because you know, I I've been saying this for a long time on this podcast for the whole time that I've been doing it for three years, but nurses' jobs, our job is not to hold your hand. Our job is not to comfort you. Our job is not to be an angel or to. It's it's that is what we do. That makes us that's that's an that's extra an extra special touch that you can put that makes you just an exceptional nurse if you're able to do your job with compassion and empathy and and you know you you have the ability to re, you know to reach out and connect with that patient while you're using your brain and your knowledge and your education to care for them that I feel like. That there is always so much more emphasis placed on the handholding and compassion that it diminishes the real important part of our job. And that is our knowledge and our ability to care for that patient using our education and our skills and our brain. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, I think I mean, being able to hold a patient's hand while your brain is also running through lab values and Mm-hmm. You know, predicting the orders that will be put in next and getting one step ahead of them um, just kind of speaks to the science that
0: is nursing exactly. and i i I'm going to start this is probably going to be a soapbox that I'm going to get on and never get off. And it's because I feel like this is something that needs to be out in the forefront, especially what nurses have gone through of this past year, that we need to demand respect. We need to be we need to demand respect and respect equates to. Compensation, pay, that's that's what respect is equal to, it's pay. And it's also adequate staffing, nurse to patient ratios, it's being treated like the professional that you are. And I, I, I just feel like we, we're all going to have to kind of rally together to make administ- hospital administrations and people all across um, the world, really, to step up and accept and understand what nurses really do nurses are scientists our federal government needs to understand that because their nursing schools do not receive the same funding that other schools do that are considered stem careers so like science and engineering and math those they receive special funding from our federal government because it's stem and why in the world are colleges of nursing are not getting this getting money for for being STEM. It makes no sense to me. And someone should be advocating for this. I mean, our nursing instructors do not make enough money. For you, you have to go through all that you have to go through to get a nursing degree, to have that experience, and then get a master's degree at least to be able to teach other nurses. And what they're paid is laughable if you compare it to other other professors. So I guess that's it. That's our that's our episode. We did it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> there's a lot of great stories. I know today. that was just.
0: Um, I feel like I got like all of the things. I like, I got to talk about all the stuff that I wanted to talk about. So it's just sometimes the stories are. You know, I have to kind of go with with what the stories are that I have for that day, and they're sometimes they're more fun than others. You know, to talk about. But today I got. I felt like I got to be on soapboxes all day long. <laughs> It
1: always helps. And it's something you're nice and passionate about. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being willing to just share. And I'm so excited to get to know you now and have this connection with Q. I feel like that's just the craziest thing ever. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm definitely going to message Q today and tell him about our new friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, See you next time. He's back in the area as well. But
0: this has been lovely. Thank you so much. Well, you guys, if you want to send me a message, send me an email. Lord knows I probably said all kinds of stuff to make somebody <laughs> mad at some point today. You can you can message me at Tina at com. Please follow us on uh, Instagram at GoodNurseBadNurse. You can find us on Facebook at GMBM Podcast and Twitter at GMBM Podcast. We're also on YouTube. We're on there, too. We're on TikTok like barely we got on there and it was just like this is overwhelming i can't handle all this stuff so but also i just want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy please be a good nurse